You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. So when someone wrongs you, how do you respond? How do you react? Perhaps you've faced the pain of a coworker who threw you under the bus to protect their own job and their own skin. Maybe you've dealt with the betrayal of a family member who has taken a knife and dug it into your back. Maybe you've had a friend, maybe a very best friend, who has hurt you, slandered you, gossiped about you. Or maybe, even more tragically, you've had someone abuse you take advantage of you, use you and your body for their own selfish purposes. In this fallen world that we live in, we feel the sting of countless injustices against us. And some of those injustices are sharper than others. For the stings of a more criminal nature, we rightly look to the sword of justice that God has entrusted to the government. As we know, the courts of human justice often and frequently fail to bring perfect justice. Whether offenses committed against us are criminal or not, our initial impulse for justice can rather quickly in our hearts become a personal quest for vengeance. We can be tempted to take matters into our own hands become a vigilante with a single mission to unleash payback against those who have wronged us. But we cannot bring forth justice through the committing of injustice. We cannot overcome evil by committing evil. Our text today warns us of the danger of becoming a masked crusader over our own lives. Over the course of 1 Samuel chapter 24, uh, 25, and 26, David faces three opportunities to take vengeance. Twice against Saul and another time against a fool named Nabal. David will face these three temptations during his wilderness journey to take matters into his own hands, to take out those who oppose him, to end his suffering, to expedite his glory. One one third of the 80 or so uses of the term good and evil in 1 Samuel occur in these three chapters. What sits before David in the wilderness is his own form of a tree of knowledge of good and evil. And David is tempted. He faces a temptation to take a juicy bite out of the fruit of vengeance. But by God's gracious intervention, David's wilderness temptation, uh, by by God's glorious intervention, David will succeed, on this occasion at least, where Adam fails. And David's wilderness temptation here parallels and foreshadows and anticipates his son's temptations during a similar journey to the Judean wilderness. If you remember at the end of chapter 23, David was nearly caught by King Saul. 
until he got a message of a Philistine attack. But whatever the distraction, it didn't deter Saul for very long from his main mission in life, which is to find and to kill and eliminate the son of Jesse. And so Saul has now returned at the start of chapter 24. He is on the hunt with his 3,000 men all looking for David. And in verse 3 of chapter 24, we are told that Saul goes into a cave to cover his feet, which is a Hebrew euphemism for defecation. So Saul is vulnerable at the start of this chapter. He's away from his men. He's out of sight. And quite literally, he is caught with his pants down. And David and his men, we are told, are hiding in the innermost part of that cave. And as the scene is set, as we open up this chapter, here is David's chance to get rid of Saul and to be done with all this injustice and suffering and evil that Saul keeps committing against him. At least that's what David's men think. Let's pick up in chapter 24, verse 4. And the men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. As David's men are huddled in the innermost part, hiding for their lives in the cave, as they see Saul enter in, they literally can't believe what's happening. They, they attribute these circumstances, this must be the providence of God. What else, what, what are the chances of something like this happening? And they encourage David to recognize, David, what's happening here is the fulfillment of the Lord's oracle. God is giving Saul into your hands, David. This is the moment. So David goes and he stealthily cuts, cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. The garment of the king symbolized the power and the kingdom. Earlier when Saul tore off Samuel's robe, when he was rejected as king, it symbolized how the Lord was tearing away the kingdom from Saul. And so as David cuts off Saul's robe, it is a symbolic attack of David cutting off Saul's kingdom. And as David cuts off Saul, Saul's robe, he is convicted almost immediately of his actions. Even though it's just symbolism, David recognized that he has disgraced and dishonored the Lord's anointed king by cutting off the robe. David insists he refuses to put out his hand against the Lord's anointed king. And just a quick aside, because it's so pervasively and often abusively misused, no pastor should be thought of as the Lord's anointed. The phrase is reserved in the context of God's kings in Scripture, and the anointed one, the Christ, is Jesus. 
So using the phrase, the the Lord's anointed to refer to a Christian leader is often just a malicious tactic to elevate the leader outside of the realm of the congregation's accountability. Brush injustices under the rug and just an attempt to silence critics. Pastors who use that sort of language attempt to diminish the congregation's authority and responsibility to address moral failings. Remember, pastors are nothing more than church members set aside by the congregation and entrusted by the church to lead and shepherd that congregation. Pastors are men who are under authority, under the authority of Christ to whom they must give an account, and the local church has God-given authority to exercise the authority of Jesus in its selection and removal of leaders. So anytime you hear someone use the language of Lord's anointed to refer to a Christian leader, you should have your suspicions alerted. But in David's context, he recognizes here that he does not have the authority, even as God's chosen king, he doesn't have the authority to end Saul's life. It was the Lord who put Saul on the throne of Israel, and it must be the Lord alone to remove him. David refuses. He will not take a shortcut to the throne by staining his hands with Saul's blood. In verse 7, it says David persuaded his men and commanded them not to attack. The language of persuade, I think, is a little soft. It underplays the intensity of the verb of David's actions here. David is rebuking his men. More accurately, he is tearing apart his men. In other words, David is verbally tearing into his men with his words to prevent them from tearing into Saul. And in his love for Saul, David can't help but flee the safety of the cave to seek reconciliation with the man he thinks he's wronged. Perfect love casts out fear. And David runs after Saul to show love towards his enemy. Let's keep reading in verse 8. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave, and some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients say, says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As David comes out of the cave, he he bows and shows honor to Saul. 
And though David is grieved that he has cut off Saul's robe, it provides, though, irrefutable evidence of David's unwillingness to do Saul harm. David will not lead a rebellion against Saul, nor will he take Saul's kingdom by means of assassination. David will not strike Saul. And thus, Saul's pursuit of David, as David tries to help him see, is utterly foolish. Why is Saul chasing after a dead dog? The dead dog going to do you any harm, Saul? Is a flea going to do you any harm? David insists that he will not raise his hand against Saul. David's refusal to strike Saul is all the more astonishing because Saul has done the complete opposite of that, hasn't he? Saul has made multiple attempts on David's life, though David's innocent, and he currently leads the army of Israel, all 3,000 of them, on a manhunt for David. And David points out the irony in verse 11 to Saul. I have not committed, I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. Saul has committed injustice against David through his jealous and murderous hunt. But David refuses to retaliate. He will not fight fire with fire. He will not deal with wickedness by means of wickedness. He does not resort to a personal vendetta but he waits for the justice of God. He tells Saul, may the Lord, look at verse 12, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. The Lord must judge the matter, and it will be the Lord who avenges David's cause. David will not do it himself. Yet David warns Saul The Lord is judge, though, Saul. The Lord will give his sentence. And when the Lord gives his verdict, he will come to to David's cause. He will deliver David out of Saul's hand. He warns Saul, Saul, justice is coming. And when God's justice comes, you will find yourself on the receiving end of that justice. You see, David can suffer injustice with patience because he knows God is judge. And he, the Lord, will execute perfect justice in his time. Are you a victim of injustice this morning? Perhaps your soul aches and groans for resolution, for retribution, for equity, for fairness, for justice. Listen very carefully lest you be swallowed up by your own grief and anger. The character of God is the only solace for victims. The righteousness of the Almighty is the only refuge for those oppressed by the sins of others. Perhaps your abuse has been a family secret for decades outside the bounds of the statute of limitations and seems, by at least worldly estimations, seems to have skirted by the courts of human justice. What hope then do you have other than the justice of God? What recompense is available to you other than the wonderful, glorious truth that the judge of all the earth will do what is right? What comfort do you have other than the good news that God is judge and nothing has escaped his sight. Friend, take heart. God's justice may be delayed, 
and it may not even be given in your lifetime, but his perfect justice will come at that great white throne. And the only way to soothe the boiling rage over sins committed against you is to rest in a sovereign God who will plead your case and who will deliver you from the hands of your enemies. It's difficult to put into practice, but we must seek to obey Paul's instructions in Romans 12. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, what do we do? We feed him. He is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We must let God deal with our enemies. Vengeance doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the Lord. And we must follow the words of Jesus. The words of Jesus that are in the back of Paul's minds as he writes Romans 12. Love your enemies, Jesus says, and do good to those who hate you. And we can only love our enemies when we rest our souls in the justice of God. As David addresses Saul with such kindness here, such love, David is heaping burning coals on Saul's head. And Saul responds in verse 16, moved emotionally by David's righteousness. Let's keep reading in verse 16. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with well with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me in your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Saul marvels at David's righteousness. And so Saul, in a moment of clarity, recognizes what his son Jonathan had already recognized. The Lord will bring David into the kingship. And David promises here, as he promised Jonathan, that he will not cut off the house of Saul when he becomes king. And though it's a very emotional scene, a true reconciliation has not happened. Sadly, as the two men go separate ways, Saul will continue his hunt for David. And in the transition to the next section, the next chapter, we are notified here of Samuel's death. Israel's spiritual leader is now gone. Look at chapter 25, verse 1. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Samuel's death is an important little detail included here because it sets up a scene later in the book. But as David continues his wilderness journey, he goes to the wilderness of Paran, and chapter 25 gives a lengthy account of David's dealings with a rich and foolish man named Nabal. 
Nabal is included here because between these two episodes of David sparing Saul's life because Nabal is a sort of Saul. The episode of Nabal sort of parallels and illustrates the relationship between Saul and David. And here in this chapter, David faces a second temptation of vengeance, and he comes dangerously close to acting out that revenge. But the Lord, as we will see, will restrain his hand through the imploring of the wise and beautiful Abigail. Because of its length, I have to summarize much of this chapter for us, but the opening of the chapter sets the scene. There's a wealthy man named Nabal who owned 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, a lot of livestock. Nabal had a wife, we're told, named Abigail, who was, the text describes her as discerning and beautiful. But Nabal, contrast, was harsh and badly behaved. So we're told that it's the season for sheep shearing. This is a time of festival and feasting. And so David sends 10 men to Nabal to make a rather polite request for Nabal. David's men had been protecting Nabal's shepherds in the wilderness. And David requested that Nabal extend hospitality to 10 of his men, welcoming them to partake of the feast. But Nabal doesn't just decline the request but he declines it and expresses utter contempt for David as he rejects his request. Let's pick up in verse 9 of chapter 25. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men whom I do not know where? But David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword, and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David while 200 remained with the baggage. Nabal's response is an utter insult to David. He's condescending. Who's the son of Jesse? What's the big deal about this kid? He reckons that David is no more than just a runaway slave from his little master, King Saul. He considered David a freeloader. Notice the first person pronouns in the text. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat and I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? Nabal is an arrogance, and he is a greedy man who scorns David and refuses to show kindness, generosity, or hospitality to David's men. David is appalled at Nabal's foolishness, and he reacts presumptuously, urging his men to arms. Every man, strap on his sword. David leaves 200 men with the baggage. He takes the other 400 to strike vengeance on Nabal for his arrogance and to pillage Nabal's wealth for himself. David is offended, and we see him begin to indulge into the temptation that he resisted last chapter. Here he's beginning to succumb. He's taking matter into his own hands. David prepares to deal with Nabal's wickedness by responding with his own wickedness. In a scary way, David resembles Saul getting ready to eradicate the priest of Nam. Saul burned down the town. 
just over the suspicion of disloyalty. And here, David is personally offended. He readies his men to vindicate his name by doing the same thing. David is taking a play from the playbook of King Saul. But by God's grace, before David sins and sullies his ascent to the throne with blood guilt, the wise Abigail intervenes. A servant goes to Nabal's wife, Abigail, reports what is happening, and they, they tell her of Nabal's slight of David, even though David had been a wall of protection for the flocks, and now David is mounting up all of his forces to come and attack Nabal. And notice verse 17. Notice what the servant says. The servant says, Nabal, he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Nabal, whose name means fool, is a man of Belial, a worthless man, just like the sons of Eli. And this news, Abigail springs into action. Without notifying her foolish husband, Abigail sends a gift to David and then goes to meet the indignant David with his forces. And the Lord uses Abigail here to bring peace, to give wise counsel to David and to protect David from committing the sin of revenge. Let's read of their interaction starting in verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as is his name, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that you, your servant, has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living and the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience having shed blood without cause, or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. What a godly woman who has the courage to intercede for her foolish husband and offer wise counsel to restrain David's hand. Interestingly, Abigail takes complete personal responsibility for Nabal's actions. Abigail seems to be the sort of shrewd wife who has to handle her husband's affairs. Nabal was the sort of man that, that Abigail and the servants tried to keep away with a bottle of wine out of this scenario because he was a fool. Everywhere he goes, things blow up and things get out of control. But the incompetent Nabal had a competent wife. If Abigail had known about the visit of David's men, she says she would have seen to it then that they were well supplied. 
But then she begins to appeal to David humbly with respect, but with incredible boldness. She tells David that by her intervention, the Lord has restrained David's hand from blood guilt. And she persuades David, David, don't unleash your army on Nabal. She, she appeals to how the Lord has protected and blessed David and that the Lord must ultimately deal with David's enemies and that on his way to the throne, David mustn't stain his hands with the shedding of blood that would later grieve his conscience. David must not work salvation for himself, but he must trust in the vindication of the Lord. And David responds in grateful blessing for Abigail's intervention. Let's keep reading. In verse 32, and David said to Abigail, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand she had brought him, and he said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. David was speeding 100 miles down the road towards vengeance. He had a sword in his hand. He is ready to respond to evil with evil, to deal with Nabal's sin by committing a sin himself. But the Lord uses Abigail to protect David from blood guilt. David was ready to stumble full steam into sin, but the Lord uses Abigail to protect David from sin. You know, whatever it means for a husband to be ahead of his wife, it must make room for heroic women like Abigail, who defies her husband's foolishness and acts in godliness. And whatever it means for a woman not to have authority over a man when it comes to the public ministry of teaching, it must grant room for men to receive private admonishment and instruction from godly women. A beautiful and discerning woman of the Lord protects others, very frequently the men in her life, from the foolishness of sin. Unlike Eve, who entices Adam to join her in sin, Abigail does the opposite. Abigail acts to warn David against committing sin. Godly women who are filled with the courage to warn, to offer wise counsel, and to admonish others with the word of God are a blessing to everyone. In Proverbs, both wisdom and folly are personified with femininity. Foolishness is personified as the adulteress that allures others to the grave, to destruction, while wisdom is personified in that last chapter as a virtuous woman who fears the Lord. The excellent wife, more precious than jewels, is a woman like Abigail, industrious, shrewd, wise, who walks in the fear of the Lord. And as Abigail brings peace and restrains David's lust for revenge, the Lord exercises his vengeance here rather quickly in the case of Nabal as a way to instruct and to teach David. Let's keep reading in verse 36. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So, he, so she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. About 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. 
After Nabal's drunken feasting, Abigail shares the report of just what happened with David, how close he came to utter destruction as Nabal gets sobered up. And then when he hears the news from Abigail, his heart died at the news. Instead of a heart of flesh, the Lord gives him a heart of stone. And 10 days later, Nabal drops dead. The Lord kills him. Listen how David responds in verse 39. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take take you to him as his wife. And she arose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael, his daughter, to David's wife, to Paltai, the son of Laish, who was of Galeam. As David hears of Nabal's death, he's given a very important lesson. It is the Lord who avenges. The Lord will bring the retribution of his justice upon David's enemies. David must not act as he almost did in presumption. He must not take matters of vengeance into his own hands. He must not act hastily, but wait on the Lord. Wait on the justice of God. The episode here of of David and Abel reminded him, it taught David an all-important lesson. If he would but wait on the Lord, the Lord will deal with Saul just as he had done with Nabal. After Nabal's death, David takes Abigail as his wife. Further details here are given of David's marital relationships. He also took Ahinoam as, as a wife. Saul treated David as good as dead, and he went ahead and gave Michael, his wife, and to another man. But as David begins to engage here in the sin of polygamy, we begin to notice a dangerous pattern in his life, a habit he has of taking whatever beautiful woman he finds and adding her to his collection. By the time David becomes king in 2 Samuel chapter 3, we're told that he had six sons from six different women. While king, David has a a harem of 10 concubines. And as David begins to take women, why not take the pretty young woman bathing on the roof as well? And the sins of the father would become the sins of the son. David's sons imitate their dad. Amnon would rape Tamar. When Absalom rebels, he takes David's harem of concubines, he goes on a public rooftop before all Israel and takes them there. And Solomon's total number of wives and concubines went to a thousand, a thousand. Even as David resists the temptation of blood guilt here, we begin to see his Achilles heel becoming exposed, his lust for beautiful women. No wonder then the serpent chooses to strike at David's weak point and therefore disqualifying David from being the one who would crush the head of the serpent. While David has resisted two temptations so far towards vengeance, David finds himself with another opportunity to assassinate Saul. 
The second opportunity very clearly parallels the first. The start of chapter 26 sets up the scene. Saul renews his hunt for David, and David's spies discover the whereabouts of where Saul's camp is located. No longer the hunted, David becomes the hunter. Let's start reading in chapter 26, verse 6. Then David said to Ahimelech, the Hittite, and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, who will go down with me into the camp of Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hands this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear and I will not strike him twice. David and Abishai go into the camp together at night, and they make their way into the center of the camp where Saul was located, sleeping with his spear in the ground by his head. Remember that the spear symbolizes how Saul has become a king just like all the nations. Abishai attributes these events just like the events prior. This must be the providence of God here. God has given you an opportunity, David, to kill Saul. Let's take it. Abishai tempts David to be just like King Saul. Take the spear and let's drive it through him. It'll just take me one strike, David. I'll do it for you. Let me do it. Here's the third temptation of David. Will David wait on the Lord for justice or will he become like Saul, take the spear and take matters into his own hands? Let's read what happens in verse nine. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake where they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. David entrusts Saul's future into the hands of the Lord. If the Lord wants Saul dead, then the Lord must do it. David refuses to raise his hand against the Lord's anointed and to have his will overrule the will of God. But as they exit the camp, the two men leave with the king's spear and the jar of water from Saul's head. No one awoke, no one saw them because the Lord had put all of Saul's army into a deep sleep, all 3,000 of them. So the next day, David makes his appearance before Saul and his army. Let's read about it in verse 13. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. (laughs) And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, will you not answer, Abner? And Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your lord, the lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is in the jar of water that was at his head. David rebukes Abner and indeed all of the armies of Israel for their failure to protect and guard the king. 
David accuses them of their failure to protect the Lord's anointed. And David reveals then the spear that he had taken, Saul's spear and the water jar. And upon hearing David's voice, Saul raises his voice for one last recorded conversation in the book between David and Saul. Let's pick it up in verse 17. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son, David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, why does my Lord pursue after his servant? What have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now, therefore, let my Lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. David questions Saul's motives for why he has been hunting him in the wilderness. As David sees it, and as he tries to rationalize Saul's actions and behaviors, there's only two possible motivations. It's either the Lord or man. And if the Lord has stirred up Saul against David, then David would be happy to seek reconciliation, to repent of any sin he's committed, to offer a sacrifice to the Lord to atone for his sin. But if what has driven Saul to his pursuit is the false accusations of foolish men, then Saul is utterly wasting his time. David's opponents have sought to drive him out of Israel, urging him to forsake the land, to forsake the Lord. David, just get out of here, go serve some other God. And as Saul hunts, David says, you hunt a flea. He squanders the resources of Israel, hunting a partridge in the mountains. David means Saul no harm. Saul seems moved yet again by David's words, even sounds repentant here. But based on Saul's past actions, we know that Saul operates in worldly grief, not godly grief. And there is no lasting repentance. Let's keep reading in verse 21. Then Saul said, I have sinned, return my son David, for I will no more do you harm because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness, for the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. This is the final conversation between Saul and David recorded in 1 Samuel. David has some serious doubts about Saul's sincerity to no longer harm him, and he decides next chapter to flee into Philistine territory. But David holds the spear up in the conversation, yet again showing how he had spared Saul's life. And David declares his faith in the Lord. May the Lord deliver me out of all tribulation. And so is the voice of faith. If you've taken matters into your own hands, either by returning evil for evil or harboring bitter hatred in your heart instead of love for your enemies, you must repent. A heart of vengeance cannot exist in a heart of faith. Vengeance seeks justice by our own hands in our own time. 
while faith seeks justice by God's hand in God's time. And as David sang in the psalm, so you must sing this morning. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. The opposite of vengeance is waiting on the God of vengeance. And take heart. The Lord will bring justice on the earth. Like the martyrs in Revelation chapter 6, we often cry out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? Yes, the delay of God's justice can feel excruciating, but waiting on the Lord is the exercise of our faith and it is the strengthening of it. Trust in the Lord that he will do what is right. He will settle accounts. Trust in his perfect character. He is righteous. He is good. He is just, and the wicked will face divine judgment. Despite what the world may tell you, the judgment of God is really good news. God alone is our vindication and our vengeance. Our holy God will not allow sin to go unpunished. The wrongs committed against us in this life will be brought under the justice of God's judgment. The Lord will not allow the, his perfect justice to be thwarted or compromised by evildoers. On that great day of judgment, all will stand naked and exposed before the all-seeing eye of God. Every abuse condemned, every assault convicted, every wound addressed, every betrayal reversed, every slander revealed, every evil punished with the unvarnished and radiant holiness of divine justice. Only in the divine courtroom of God will perfect justice be given. And take heart, perfect justice will be given. Church, wait on the Lord to avenge you while you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But while you wait, remember that God's delay of judgment is the display of his kindness. Kindness, which has given every one of us an opportunity to repent. Because in the courtroom of God, we all stand guilty. Though we have been sinned against, we are sinners ourselves. Don't be mistaken. We aren't little Davids, but we are little Sauls and little Nabals. Wicked fools who scorn the anointed king and rage against him with the injustice of our sin. And because of our sin, the bow of God's righteous wrath is bent, and it is not only directed at your oppressors, it is directed at you. But praise the Lord. He has given us a king who delivers us from our deserved wrath by satisfying the demands of his justice. We have the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our sinless savior. The only truly innocent sufferer is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as the Lord Jesus suffered the violent injustice of his enemies at the cross, he did not open his mouth. He loved them in his sufferings. 
He prayed for his enemies. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And while all his enemies surrounded him and jeered at him and relished in his spilt blood, the Lord Jesus did not take vengeance into his own hands. He refused to call down a legion of angels to deliver him from his sufferings and crush right then and there the sufferings of his enemies. Rather, Jesus submits himself to the will of his father, trusting that the father at his appointed time would vindicate his son over all who oppose him. And at the injustice of the cross, the Lord Jesus satisfied the justice of God. Through the murderous lusts of wicked men, Jesus provides redemption for all who would turn from their sins and put their faith in Christ. And by his death, by the death of Jesus, the Lord saves condemned sinners like us and by faith justifies us in his sight. Friend, you will either be protected by the justice of God or crushed by the wrath of God. If you will repent of your sin, and put your faith in Jesus Christ, you will be cloaked in his righteousness today, justified by faith, by grace. But if you continue to scorn Jesus, if you keep hurling insults, if you keep reviling the Lord's anointed by your sin, God the judge will declare his verdict on your life guilty. And on that day, on that day of judgment to come, the God of vengeance will be swift with his sword of justice, ready to spill your blood and cast your soul forever in hell. Whatever injustice has been committed against you is less than the injustice Christ suffered because of you. Turn to Jesus as the only savior for sinners and have your soul saved and guarded by his gracious and perfect and loving justice. And here is the glorious good news, that the innocent Jesus not only died, but he rose again on the third day. The father vindicated his son through the glories of his resurrection, crowning Jesus forever with glory and honor and praise. Let us rejoice That because Jesus lives, because he is God's king, because he reigns in heaven, that those of us who wait in faith for the king's justice, that we now can hide in the refuge of his wings as we wait for him. We will share. We will share in Jesus's vindication and we will bask in the dawning light of divine justice. The God of vengeance will shine forth. And he shines in the radiance of his son, the anointed king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And through the rule of God's kingdom, Christ the king will avenge his people. He will fill the earth with his justice. And he will deliver us out of every tribulation. And until that day of Christ's return, and behold, he is coming soon. Let us then wait on the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come before you, humbling, recognizing how frequently we take matters into our own hands, how quickly we harbor bitterness against our enemies instead of love, how quick we are to become vindictive and angry and vengeful. Lord, we pray that we would find rest from our sins as we look to Jesus. 
Lord Jesus, we pray that you would save those who are lost, that you would redeem them out of their sin, that you would cause them to be born again this morning as they look in faith to you. Lord Jesus, we ask that you might work now during this time. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.